Portico. Hey, good to have you all here. You're all wide awake and uh, enjoying the week so far? Good, good deal. Well, I just, I love hearing the conversation in the room when you're meeting new people, you're getting connected. If you're visiting today, we are so glad that you're joining us. If you're getting ready to take a little bit of a summer vacation, you can take us with you. Don't forget that we are online. And those of you that are joining us right now online, we want to welcome you to Portico Online, as well as the chapel, our video cafe, and uh, those that are sort of joining us by way of our podcast, our medias as well, and in the live room. So good to have each of you here. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles out, and ushers, if you can help us here in the main room, if you're online or in the other venues, if you want, you can go to uversion.com, look up live events, Mississauga, and in this room, keep your hand up, and an usher will come. We'll make sure you get a Bible. We'll do this for the Chapel of Video Cafe as well. This way you can track along. If you have your electronic devices, go to uversion.com. You can follow and take notes with us, and just look up the live event for Mississauga, you'll find Portico right there, and it's a great way to stay tracking. And here's what I want you to do. Take your Bibles. Let's go to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And while you're turning there, uh, last Sunday was a great day. It was so good to have Rabbi Zacharias with us here, and we had many, many people that just enjoyed uh, his presentation. If you watch that, and, and if you're here for the service last week, and you're wondering, how do I get that video? How can I show my family and my friends? If you download our app, or if you have our app, you can get it on the video right away. It's there. Or go to our website, particlecanada.ca. Go to the media, and you can see the video. And We have everything uploaded for you, so you can track with that. Well, let's get over to Matthew chapter 19. I mentioned last week we're going to start a brand new series. It's called Paradox. And I, I just, this is a fascinating study that we're going to go through this summer. And each of the weeks, we're going to have a little bit of a different reflection, dive into a different part of the Gospels and the life of Jesus. But a paradox, it's a statement, a thought, a concept, or even an image that appears to be a little bit disconnected or disjointed. If you're wondering, you know, what is a paradox? It's when you see something and you go, I know it doesn't quite make sense, but it should make sense. So there's an image on the screen. It's like a pencil in a glass of water. You look at this pencil, and everything in your mind tells you, I know that the pencil is entirely whole, but the image that you look at presents itself to be disjointed or disconnected. So that's a visual way of describing what a paradox is like. So you see something, you hear something, and you go, I, I just, I'm not quite sure how this all fits together. It was Socrates who probably declared the greatest of the paradoxes. Here's what he said. I know one thing that I know nothing. Yeah, think about that. Men, this is our out clause for everything we do in life. I know one thing, I know nothing. And so Socrates sort of kicked this all off and he gave us a paradox for living. Life is filled with paradoxes. We often just don't take time to think about them. You're sitting in a service much like this one. You've been in services. I've been in services where the communicator has been speaking, and they say, and in conclusion, and they never stop. They just sort of, they can't land that plane. They just carry on. And I've been in services where they've repeated in conclusion a number of times that I wanted to help them. You know what the word means, right? You can stop now because we just, that's the paradox. It's conflicted. Politicians create a paradox. You know, we go into election years and politicians make a lot of campaign promises and then they end with that great statement, trust me. And we all know that once they're in, those promises are gone. Or what about parents? Oh, sorry, you have to pick on parents. It's because we're all kids. 
Now, how many of you remember this when you're about to be appropriately disciplined for something you did wrong, and your parent, before they disciplined you, said, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Oh, whoa, we were all there. I'm still working that out with my therapist. How did that hurt my parents more than it hurt me? I felt that. That's one of those paradoxes. And even the Bible has biblical paradoxes. And the Bible uses a paradox in a way to challenge deeper thinking. So Jesus, in Scripture, you got this. You have to give if you want to receive. You have to die if you really want to live. Or you've got to become weak if you want to find strength. Now, everything inside of us is going, no, 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 no. Now, that's, that's totally counterintuitive. That doesn't work that way. That's what a paradox does. It creates tension. It creates tension with our faith. We find it difficult to reconcile. And all of a sudden, we're going, this doesn't make any sense to me. Now, let's be clear. God does not resort to the use of paradox to confuse us. On the contrary, the use of a paradox, particularly a biblical paradox, is used to challenge us to reflect deeper on a truth to dive in and look for the hidden meaning or the truth and the understanding that's embedded within. Because most people, if they hear, they simply follow along and they don't reflect long enough to think about it. It's one of the reasons we go to school. We learn how to study and we read the books so that we begin to acquire knowledge and wisdom. So we have to reflect and just uh, integrate it into our thinking and into our life. Jesus repeatedly would say to his his disciples, he who has ears, let them hear. hear. So he would throw it out there to challenge. And herein lies the tension. The tension is, is, do I perceive or comprehend the truth that's being presented? And then the goal is, am I really applying it to my life? So a paradox throws out this challenge, what seems to be rather disjointed or potentially disjointed. And yet then at the end of it, we find there's all this hidden truth within it. And the real goal is, have I applied it to my life? So through Scripture, particularly through the Gospel, we find these paradoxes that Jesus uses, and we wonder, do I understand? And if you're over in Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, we're going to look at a paradox that Jesus used, and I think this is maybe frequently the one that we refer to if you're new to the Bible. Uh, You probably have heard this, even if the Bible's brand new to you. Many of you that have read the Bible before, you would have seen this, you would have heard it quoted, and maybe you've quoted it yourself, and here's what it says, but many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. How many of you have heard that before? If you go to church, I hope so. And if you're new, you heard it for the first time today. So many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. We love this paradox. In fact, we live by this paradox. We live for the paradox, maybe is a better way to state that. How do I know that? Because like you, I travel. And when I go to the airport... I have these experiences where I think we all go, man, someday I'm going to be first. Let me tell you why. I get my ticket, they give me my boarding pass, and I head out to wait to board the plane. And then the little announcer comes on and says, we're about to board the plane, we're going to begin boarding by zones. Who came up with this? We're going to board by zones. So they go, please look at your boarding pass and look at your zone. We're going to begin boarding with zone one, working our way to the final boarding zone. I'm I'm zone Six. I might as well be 36. Zone six means the bins are full. You have a seatbelt. That's what that means. So I'm looking at my boarding pass, and then they come back on and go, we're ready to board, and we're going to begin with boarding with zone one. 
But if you're an elite, super elite, ultra elite, an elitist, a wannabe elitist, you go ahead and come on on our priority lane. So now I'm on zone six back here, and I'm watching all these people board the plane. So there's a two lanes for boarding. You notice this, right? There's a priority lane, and then there's the cattle lane. And I'm over in the cattle lane. And I'm not up in the front of the cattle. I'm in the, I'm zone six, people. I'm back there somewhere. I should have brought lunch with everybody on the plane. And when you're standing in the line, they continually announce, if you're one of our super elite, elite members, feel free to board at your convenience. They're basically telling, Doug, wait your turn. But everybody else, you board, and people are whisking by me. You had this experience? They're going right by me. And I'm going, one day, one day, the first will be last. And the last will be first. See, we're all there. We understand that. We go to buffet lines, and that's what we pray. We go to the bank, and we pray the same thing. We live by... But did Jesus really mean that? Did Jesus mean that the perks, the privileges, the paychecks, and the parking is going to be a great reversal where one day that's all mine, and those who had it will no longer have it? Is that what that paradox was referring to? Well, Jesus, when he uses this paradox, he actually uses it in a context that we need to dive a little bit deeper into it so we get the understanding. Because there's a context to this statement which begs us to go deep into the paradox. And I want to do that with you. So if you're in Matthew chapter 19, can I ask you to leave your Bible open today? Because I'm going to go in and out of the text. And I want you to see this as we go through. But let me set up the story before I read. In uh, Matthew chapter 19... The Bible says that a rich young ruler, wealthy young businessman, let's go there, a wealthy young businessman came up to Jesus and he said to Jesus, he goes, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know, keep the commandments. And this wealthy young businessman looked at Jesus and he goes, okay, which commandments? Now, interesting, if you note in the Bible, Jesus bypasses the first four, which deal with our relationship to God. So man's relationship to God. He goes to the commandments, the 6th, 7th, 8th, and the 5th. He deals with the commandments that have to do with our relationship to humanity. And he refers to these, and he mentions these ones. So this wealthy young businessman looking at Jesus, he goes, all of these I have kept since a youth. And then he asks a question. He goes, what else do I lack? And Jesus looks at the wealthy young businessman, and he said, go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and then come follow me. Now, Matthew records that this statement made this young man very, very sad because he was extremely wealthy, and he dropped his head, his countenance changed, and he turned and he walked away. And at that moment, the disciples are watching all of this take place in this conversation, rather intriguing. And then Jesus turns to the disciples, and he's about to make a statement that will rock their world, and it should rock ours in the same way. It would destabilize their understanding of what eternal life is really all about and how you achieve it. So Matthew chapter 19, right after this young man is walking away, refusing to let his wealth go, Jesus says this. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And they asked, then, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them, and with man, he said, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. 
And Peter answered, and he said, we have left everything to follow you. So what will there be for us? Drop down now. And then Jesus said to them, everyone who has left houses, brothers, or sisters, father or mother, or children or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will receive and will inherit eternal life. And then he drops a paradox. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So here we are with this text, and I love quoting it when I see what I perceive to be an injustice or an inequity, and I want to get on a plane quicker. But what was Jesus getting at? And if you look at this paradox, what you'll discover is embedded within it are three facets of God's grace. There's probably a lot more, but there's three for sure that I could identify. And I want to share them with you. I'm going to ask you to take a few notes. And in your notes, by the way, that opening scripture reference, the paragraph, that's, uh, that's just misplaced. That's going to be for next week. We're just ahead of the game. We want you reading ahead. So uh, don't worry about the John reference in there. We're in Matthew chapter 19. But I do want you to take a few notes this morning because Jesus uses a paradox for us who have ears to hear, eyes to see, that we might understand. And perhaps together today we can do that. So would you write this down? God's grace is not measured by our standards. God's grace is not measured by our standards. See, when he said many who are first will be last and many who are last are going to be first, you've got to connect it now back to the story of the rich young ruler. And it's not immediately apparent to us Most of us would never study to this level. If we lived in the culture, we would have known this. And that's why it's so important for us to be able to understand and feel the culture of the Scripture here. But in Jewish culture, when Jesus said to this rich young ruler, you know, sell your wealth, give it away, give it to the poor, come and follow me, and then he walks away. And then he turns to his disciples and he said to them, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. This literally shocked these guys. Because in Jewish culture... Prosperity, abundance, and wealth represented God's favor. When they saw people who had wealthy robes and ornate homes and who had beautifully decorated camels and donkeys and they had servants, they would look at these people within their context and they go, well, then surely the blessing of God is upon these people because we know that in Scripture God says, if you follow me and you obey me, I will bless you and you'll have abundance and you'll never have to worry. And so they saw all these people in society this way. And Jesus says, and he asks this rich young ruler, this rich businessman, to give up what he has. And he goes, I can't do that. And he walks away. And when Jesus then makes the declaration, how hard it is for rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. See, we don't pick this up, but for the disciples, they were going, whoa, they're the ones who are already in. They're the ones that we believe have already, they've got God's favor. Like, they would not even think that they wouldn't inherit eternal life. So when Jesus makes the statement, this amazed them. Now, you contrast that because Jesus comes, and what does he do? He goes to the poor and the impoverished and the outcast and and those that are enslaved, and he talks about setting them free. You begin to see the kingdom principle begin to play out in a bigger picture because Jesus came because we've got all these messed up ideas of who is in and who is out and who has eternal life and who doesn't have eternal life. And so even the disciples are tracking with him, and they're going, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean the rich can't get in? We thought for sure. We grew up in this culture believing that surely they were the chosen of God. And now we're trying to figure out how to inherit eternal life. That's what prompted the statement, who can be saved if they can't? See, it's amazing when you understand this, 
that what Jesus did is just leveled the playing field. And he goes, a person's status and a person's wealth and a person's prosperity has nothing to do with the grace of God. Like we like to flaunt it in the West. It's got nothing to do with the grace of God. God does give good gifts to his kids, no, no question. But it is not an indicator of those who inherit eternal life. And so for them, in first century Palestine, they're trying to, you know, who's making the cut? But we're a little bit like that in 21st century, aren't we? We like to know who's in and who's out. We like to survey. So let's have a little, you guys okay if we have a little bit of fun today? Let's have some fun. So who's going to heaven and who's not? Look around the room. Look at your neighbor. Make a decision for them because you can help them. But on the screen, I've helped you out here a little bit. So who makes the cut? We put heaven at the top. If you're not ready to call it hell, I gave you a couple of question marks at the bottom. You can work that out. So there's a lot of fire and torment going on here. But So who makes the cut? Well, I thought we should put a few names in there. Before you put your name up there, because we tend to know where we fit, let's throw a name like Mother Teresa. Is she in or out? How do you guys know? No, see, we do this. We go, wow, she's got to be in, Doug. I mean, she's a great woman. She serves the poor, and she gave her life. Okay, let's send her to heaven. Thank you very much. You win. That's your first prize. So let's try a second one. What about Hitler? See, now, nobody said out. Everybody went, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, rhubarb, rhubarb, rhubarb. Okay, well, let's, let's kind of put them on the brink of... Um, Hopelessness. Can you give me Hitler there for a moment? All right, somebody just give him a little kick and we'll know what happens. All right, so we do this. See, 21st century. People love to survey and answer surveys for this. Where would you put Oprah? Hmm, gets you thinking, doesn't it? Well, according to a survey, by the way, 87% of us believe in heaven. Not as many believe in hell, but we at least believe in heaven. And uh, so when surveyed, people were asked about Oprah, 66% believe that she's making the cut. So if you want to put her on the list a little higher, you can do that. Let's give you another name to play with. Where would you put Justin Bieber? (laughs) I asked that this week with the staff. You know, one of my staff members, I was talking about the, you know, different names of people we could throw out for you to think about. I said, where would you put Justin Bieber? And uh, right away, one of the staff looked at me and goes, he goes to Hillsong in New York now. I said, Really? I don't think Hillsong's New York is the qualifier for eternal life. <laughs> Nor is Particle, by the way. Right? So, where would you put Justin Trudeau? <laughs> it's an election year. Doug says nothing. So, just, I'm just asking. It was a Justin name. I put it out there. Hey, let's have a, Okay, what about this guy? Where would you put Jeff Uters? I had to do that. It's his first day back. By the way, if you've been coming recently, this is Jeff and Sharon. They're back from their sabbatical. Give them a big hand. Good to have them back on the ground. It is amazing how we like to determine who makes the cut, how we choose who the good are. And that's something that we do in life. And yet the Bible is very clear that we are not the ones. God's grace isn't measured by our standards. What we determine to be good is never good within God's standard anyhow. Isaiah talks about this. If you look at 64.6, it says all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Our righteousness falls short of God. Romans 3.23, what is it? it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Why did Jesus say the rich 
because he was dealing with the cultural implications and a misunderstanding that the wealthy had somehow already secured their pathway to eternal life. And he was correcting sort of this misunderstanding that would just spread through society, and he was leveling it. Then he uses that metaphor. He says that it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He wanted to make sure that people understood that this was an impossibility. You will not force a camel through a sewing needle, the eye of a sewing needle. He goes, if you think it's possible, it isn't. And that's what prompted that declarative statement and question from the disciples. Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus goes... With man, everything is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So now their minds are just swirling because he's just reshaped, reframed everything that they've understood. So it takes us into a second truth that gets embedded into this paradox because now that they're trying to understand, okay, so what's going on here? Would you write this down, that God's grace is not merited by our service? It's not merited by our service. So if those who are in the good bucket that we've already classified that way, here's what we begin to understand then. It's not just about classification and status and position. The paradox causes us to think deeper about grace, and that grace is not earned or not merited by work and by service. And where we see this come is the shock that Peter is going through, because when Jesus said to the rich young businessman, this wealthy young businessman, he said, go and sell everything, give it away to the poor, and come and follow me. And he turned and he walked away because he wasn't willing to do this. What does Peter do? Peter immediately jumps in and he says, and look what it says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. He said, Lord, we have left, so he's speaking on behalf of all the disciples, we have left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? Like, if you're going to rewrite the rules to go to heaven... And now you're messing with us? And if he doesn't qualify because he didn't do what you asked him to do, he didn't give it all up. So Peter turns around and he pulls this back into his court and he goes, Lord, we did it. So what's in it for us? It's interesting how we think, isn't it? That God owes us if we do everything the right way. So Peter brings it to Jesus' attention. Now, you can't fault Peter. He was going to leverage a good opportunity If the good don't qualify, maybe good works qualifies. And so Peter just wants to remind Jesus, we got all these good works. Like, we left everything behind. Now, this wasn't a confession of sacrifice, by the way, on Peter's part. This was a declaration of self-commendation. He was going, okay, if he's not in, then Jesus, look at us. Because we did what you wanted him to do. So we're probably okay then, aren't we? Now, it's noteworthy that Jesus will respond first to what will we get. So if you look at Matthew 19, you can read this later today, but when, he, when Peter says, so what's in this for us? Jesus turns and he said to him, oh, by the way, Peter, you know, in, in essence, he's saying, God is not man's debtor. He's no man's debtor. He goes, those of you that have left brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, fields and houses, you will receive a hundred times more. So if you give up, God always gives back. You give away, God always replaces. He says, you'll never be in God's debt. You can never outgive the generosity of God. So he says, you don't have to worry about keeping score here because we are scorekeepers. And he goes, you don't need to keep score because God's got your back covered in this. Now, there's one little side note, and you guys know I do this occasionally. And I was looking at some of the modern translations, the recent translations, and I was looking at the King James It's interesting that when I was looking at my study translation, that in the list of things 
that people have given away houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, field. There was no mention of wife. I told you, I study. Now, I noticed in the King James, it's listed there. This is in the Matthew text, by the way. Now, I get it. King James just needed a few extra wives. But in my world, I was thinking, hmm, is there a truth in here deeper than what I know? That I do want hundreds of brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, but one wife is enough. I'm not going any further because I got the best one. So I'm just, just a side thought. You deal with that as you want. And I'm not saying it's any spiritual depth to that. Just kind of hang on to that. But here it is. So, so Peter is just going, Jesus, we gave this all away. And underneath this grace statement, see, grace is not merited by service. It's not earned by rewards. We fixate on the rewards. So Jesus is about to teach, and he just strips away sort of this additional thought that if I get on this treadmill of doing good works, then surely God's going to open up the doors to heaven and go, come on in. That if I attend church regularly, if I put up with Doug's teaching regularly, if I give occasionally, if I serve at Cornerstone, if I teach a Sunday school, if I serve in the nursery, that's like our war zone. If I, you know, it's not, it's a nice place. But if I serve, like if I, if I get my list, because we are, we're list keepers, and we start keeping a list of things. That's what Peter was doing. He said, Lord, we did all of this, remember this. Because Jesus was saying, who inherits eternal life? So if those that we deem good, who are already classification, don't get it, then maybe it's the good works people. And friends, we all do this. We all do this. We keep a list where we feel, God, you, you owe me now. But what Jesus is driving back is that good works do not merit God's grace. Good works flow because of God's grace. We don't serve to earn grace. We serve because of grace, right? We don't work for salvation. We work because of salvation, Salvation is solely the work and the gift of God. It has nothing to do with us. And the beautiful part of this is what Jesus was doing. He was taking one classification of people, and he was bringing them down to this level, and then he was making sure that this other classification of people, like when Peter says, we did all of this, Peter, don't start lifting yourself up to this level because we've heard it said before, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all come at the same place, and God treats us at the foot of the cross through his grace. And it is a gift that none of us could ever earn. We could not do enough good works. Friends, if you think you'll work your way into heaven, you won't. That's what Jesus was telling Peter. He said, you go ahead and tell me what you've done, Peter. He said, by the way, if you want to hold up your shopping list to God, he's got your back, he'll take care of that. He'll reward you. If it's done with the right heart, right attitude, he'll reward you, Peter. But if you think that list is going to qualify you to have the forgiveness of your sins and relationship with me and to restore you into life with God. doesn't work that way. In your notes, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Interesting how Paul would pick up on what Peter was doing. You can't boast about what you've done because God's gift of grace 
is exactly that. It is a gift and is given to all, regardless of whether we deem them good or regardless of whether we think we have all of our good works. So this paradox, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first, is starting to come into some clarity for them. And I have one last thought that I want you to write down this morning. God's grace mystifies our sense of equity. God's grace mystifies our sense of equity. So when Jesus, in your notes, when Jesus said in Matthew 19.30, he goes, you know, the first, many of the first are going to be last and the last are going to be first. This is after the disciples have watched this rich young ruler and this conversation, and then Jesus closes it out with this paradox, and they're like, whoa, what do you mean? Now, we don't have time to spend on it today, but I would encourage you, Matthew chapter 20, right away, Jesus tells a parable. It's called the parable of the vineyard, the laborer, and the, and the workers. The parable is tied to this story. So there's no separation here. And if you're new to the Bible, the chapter headings and verses were added later on for reading, for easier reading purposes and to find Scripture. But it all read together. And so when you come to this, you don't stop and go, oh, well, that's a new thought, new day. No. Chapter 20 is the continuation of the conversation. So Jesus says this paradox. So many who are first will be last, many who are last will be first. And he goes, let me explain So he tells a parable of a landowner who goes down to uh, the beginning of the day, he owns a vineyard, goes down to what I'll call the local employment center, and there are workers down at the employment center early part of the day, and he goes, what are you doing here? He said, we're looking for work. And he goes, well, why don't you come work in my field? I'll pay a denarius. A denarius was a fair day's wage for a fair day's work. So he goes, I'll pay you. I'll pay you a proper wage. So you come and work for me. So these workers went, good, we're in. And they take off and they go work in the vineyard. So Jesus says about three hours later, about nine o'clock in the morning, he goes, this landowner goes by the employment center again, sees another group of men, workers that are there, and he goes, do you want to work? And they go, yeah, we'd love to work. And he goes, then go to my vineyard, and I'll I'll pay you what's right. Go work. Six hours. It's about noontime. He goes by again. Another group of people are there. He goes, why aren't you working? We don't have work. Go work for me. I'll pay you what's right. He continues this, you know, three hours, six hours, nine hours. The 11th hour, it's about five o'clock, according to our time. He goes down to the employment center. There's another group of workers there, and he says, why aren't you working? They said, no one has hired us. And he goes, well, then I'll hire you. Go work in my vineyard. So they go work in the vineyard. They're probably only going to work for about an hour. Then the landowner goes to the, the, the foreman, and he says, I want you to pay the wages. I want you to pay those who arrived last going on down to those who came first. And paying the ones who came last, pay them a denarius and pay all the rest the same. So the foreman starts paying the wages. Now, you know what happens when payday comes and people's paydays, paychecks are different? Yeah, yeah. So he starts paying those who have only been working about an hour, and he goes, there's your denarius. And the people who had been there since 6 in the morning, they're like, what? They're getting paid the same we get paid. Then he paid those who came at 3 in the afternoon a denarius. Then he paid those that came at 12 a denarius. Then he paid those who came at 9 a denarius. Now, you know what's going on because human nature kicks in, and you're going, this is unfair. I came and worked all day. I bore the brunt of the work. I've slaved for this owner, and I'm getting paid a denarius. So they started to grumble, and they're complaining, interesting, not to the landowner. They're grumbling about the landowner. Be careful, employees. Take your grievance to the source. Don't create tension in the organization. So they're they're grumbling, and it causes the landowner to step in because the foreman's handling the work. The landowner steps in, and it's interesting. He uses this word. He goes, friend because they were they're complaining he was unfair. He used the word friend. That was a gentle rebuke. He said, friend, didn't we have an agreement? Didn't you agree to work for a fair day's wage, for a fair day's work? 
a denarius. Yes, but. See, that's what we do. We add this on. And here's what we miss. Grace looks at our need and steps in to meet our need. But when we look at our lives, we go, if I've received God's grace and I've been serving God a little bit longer, then I want a little more favor coming my way. The landowner treated everybody fairly. He was. He was fair. He gave them an equal day. Why do you say that? Here's why. Everybody down at the employment center had the same needs in their life. They were trying to raise a family. They were trying to put food on the table. They were trying to pay their bills. They were trying to make a living. So those that started at the beginning of the day, they either wanted to shortchange those who worked longer in the day or they wanted an increase in their wages to compensate for the disparity between the two. Now, in our rational thinking, we go, well, that makes perfect sense. But Jesus goes, no, you don't understand. We're talking about God. And God's grace doesn't measure the hour of the day into which we enter salvation. God's grace is given freely regardless of where we step into the gift of salvation. Jesus on the cross with a convicted thief, a criminal who deserved to die, looks at Jesus and he goes, would you remember me? And Jesus goes, today you'll be with me in paradise. A deathbed conversion. Then you get people who have lived lives good lives, served in the church, labored for God. Look at the Apostle John, died in his mid-90s. This man gave his life. And you go, whoa, why is there such disparity? Why is there the sense that everything is balanced out, it's equal? There's a difference to what God will do to reward us for our labor than it is for us to receive his grace. Do you understand the difference? Grace is a gift for salvation. And the Apostle John and the thief on the cross were given the same gift. See, that's where we come to this. When you look at the paradox, many who are first will be last, many who are last will be first. Jesus was driving this home. If you miss this, you will lose the gift of salvation because eternal life is a gift of God given through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. The Bible says, is there, how can man be saved? There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved except the Lord. Jesus Christ. Jesus said to those that were following him, said, hey, search for the narrow door. Be careful of the wide door. The narrow door is the entrance into life. So this wonderful sense of grace mystifies our sense of equity, but God in his wonderful, wonderful love and his grace towards us understands we all have the same need. Your need is my need. I need to be forgiven of my sins. You need to be forgiven of your sins. And he goes, I am not about to create disparity in grace. Grace will mystify you, but it brings all of us the same opportunity. Will God treat us according to how we labor and we work for him? Sure he will. Jesus said, he's got your back. He'll take care of you. But don't withhold grace from someone because you feel you've been serving God longer. And friends, sometimes it's those who are closer to the kingdom that struggle with this more than those who are far from the kingdom. We have family members that we're still praying for. And I don't care if it's on the last day they draw a breath that they find grace. I just want them to find God's grace. Would I love to see them serving God? Absolutely. But do I have any right to be bitter or to expect God to give me more because I've been doing this, that I've served God and I lead a church? Not at all. He's got my back. All I care about is that there's not a person listening to me today and not a person that we can all influence 
that misses the wonder of God's grace. So where's the paradox end? And I'll wrap it all up. The paradox ends when Jesus said, many are first will be last, the last will be first. When he paid those who came at the beginning of the day their wage, he gave them the wage, he said, and now go. Now in the English, it doesn't translate as fully as what I'd like it to. I wish it gave it a deeper meaning. The word go there in its language structure is go and don't come back. See, they had such difficulty with grace. They weren't worthy of the actual gift that they could receive. And Jesus was illustrating by use of a parable. There are those that are within reach of grace that they're going to completely miss it because they've got it all calculated and controlled and contrived in their own minds. And he goes, when you're like that, then you have nothing to do with the kingdom. Go and just be gone. Another sobering statement for the disciples because they're going, whoa. First, you've messed up who we think qualifies. Now you've messed up how we think we might be able to earn it. And now you're talking about that it's available for free for everybody. And some are going to miss it because they just can't wrap their heads around. It's a gift and you can't control it. So friends, this morning, many will be first. Those who are last are going to be first. Many are first are going to be last. But I pray all of us in the paradox of this truth would understand that God's grace is available today for us. So let's pray together. So God, this morning... How amazed we are at your love, your compassion, and your care. That when we were separated from you and our sin and our mistake, all that kept us apart from you, you took the initiative, and it's your grace that's extended to us. So I pray today that you would help us not to assume that we know who are the worthy recipients that you would help us to never allow ourselves to become those who try to work our way into your grace books. And that, God, we never withhold grace from those who are worthy recipients of it as well. But that we would all be, as Jesus opened that Matthew chapter 19 up with, we'd be like children, innocent in heart, innocent in mind, and we would just come to you in a childlike faith. And today, Father, I pray that. I pray that everyone listening to my voice would recognize that your gift of salvation is a gift available for them. And all they have to do is say yes to Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God, forgave their sins, and that gift is theirs today. Your eyes are closed just in a moment as I wrap all of this up. If you're watching online and maybe this is the first time this is really connected with you, then I'd encourage you just to send us an email at info at porticlecanada.ca and we'll walk with you. If you're in the room listening to me today while everybody else is just praying for a moment, we talk about saying yes to Jesus around here. And by saying yes, you're saying, yes, I recognize that grace is God's gift that he's given to me. I don't deserve it. But by trusting in Jesus as the Lord and Savior, God gives me eternal life. And I think there are some today that for the first time. That's, that's what you want to do. So I want to pray for you before we go, and as everybody else is respecting your privacy. If you would like me just to pray with you before you leave, would you raise a hand just in this room real quick, up and down? Yes, thank you, thank you, yes. Yeah. Anyone else, just real quickly, raise your hand up just so I see it. Yes, thank you. You can take them back down. Thank you, yeah. In a moment, we'll explain what you can do next at the yes station. But I just want to be able to pray for you. So, Lord, you see 
hands in this room, and I thank you that you see into our venues and our campuses and even those that are just listening and reflecting through audio or video. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you take the moment of decision where we empty ourselves of all that we think we bring and we simply embrace your gift. And as they respond to yes, Holy Spirit, would you just take up residence in their life and bring them that truth and that conviction that they are your children, loved by you, worthy now to be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.